Good morning. I want to echo uh, Kevin's prayer, uh, just that idea of God continuing and completing a good work that he begins in us when we trust in him, and he carries that all the way through to the day when we actually do enter into his presence for all of eternity. So, uh, man, I'm counting on that. I bet you are too. Thankful that God is doing this work. And uh, one of the ways we think about this work is just the simple concept of growth, just maturing. And today's passage is all about that. It is all about us uh, growing in our understanding of who God is and what he's like. Um, you've heard us say around here that the Christian life is a connected life, right? We talk about that sin separated uh, people from God, and uh, so the gospel and God's work is all about reconnecting, connecting us with him, and in that we find connected life. We find life as God intended. Now within that kind of big idea of connection, we talk about connecting backward with our story. You know, you've heard us say that. That's probably the one of the five connections that people are least interested in, perhaps even open to. We'd, we'd kind of like to say, you know what? I'd like to just leave the past in the past, right? I'll just be in the now and looking forward to better things ahead. This whole connecting backward with our story, not a big fan. And I get it especially if you've had a really rough uh, background, a really rough story. But what you're gonna see today is Luke, the one who wrote this gospel that we're studying, he is going to help us connect backward with Jesus' story. Now, what you may not know is we have literally nothing from the childhood of Christ except for some of the stuff that we studied last week, which is really the birth narratives it's just, how did Jesus enter the world? He doesn't say anything or do anything. He's just born. And we learn about all the circumstances around that. One time in the four gospels, we actually engage Jesus as a child. He actually has something to say. In fact, we're gonna see 15 Greek words. It's a few more words in the English. 15 Greek words that he says which are going to set the table for all that he will do going forward in his ministry. But this is it. This passage today is the only glimpse we get of Jesus as a child. And then everything after it, it's going to be him as an adult. So let's dive into this epic moment of Christ's life. And it begins with model parents, model parents. Parents, look at verse 41. Now his parents, so that's Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, they went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So Joseph and Mary were good Jews. They were faithful to the law, to the covenant. Uh, they just, they followed that thing as clearly as they could. And one of the requirements, particularly for Jewish men, was that they would make an annual trip, regardless of where they were, to Jerusalem. That's where the temple was located. And going there, they would celebrate the prominent feast of Israel called the Feast of Passover. Now that points us back to the book of Exodus when uh, Israel was delivered from Egypt. 
and Pharaoh. Remember, they were set free, crossed the Red Sea, went to the promised land. There's a whole lot more than that, but that's the, that's the 30,000 foot level. So they are making their way to Jerusalem to do exactly as they were instructed. And the fact that Mary is going with him is all the more impressive. So these are pious Jews. That's the point. Now, it says that Jesus is 12. So he is right on the cusp of what would have been considered young adulthood in the community of Israel. So you've heard bar mitzvah, right? That means a son of the commandment or a son of the covenant. That takes place in a Jewish boy's life at 13. So Jesus is 12, about to turn 13. His faithful parents are making this trip to Israel and they're taking him along. This is like a field trip. They're gonna get him ready to be a faithful Jew for the rest of his life. This is all about instruction. You might think of it as a coming of age. And what these model parents are doing is simply fulfilling what they were instructed to do in Deuteronomy 6. Let me read this passage to you quickly. Moses delivered these words to the people of Israel to help them understand how are we gonna function as a people. And to parents, here's what he said. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It was this idea that literally for uh, Jewish parents, your children should see and hear all that can be known about our God in you, from you. You're the one who's responsible for delivering that to them. And that's exactly what Mary and Joseph were doing. That chapter goes on to talk about uh, the Exodus and this feast of Passover. It's, it's described, and that was meant to uh, be a, a little bit of a, of a teaching lesson that parents, like a child, would ask mom and dad, like, what, what's up with all these testimonies and commandments and these feasts and festivals that we celebrate? And it was all to help them point their children to God, their deliverer. So Mary and Joseph are doing exactly what God intended them to do, even with the Son of God, Jesus, their son. Uh, this is a vital passage, as I mentioned, a coming of age for Jesus. And uh, I'm sure it was sort of this cool moment for parents thinking about like our little boy is growing up. He's going to be a man. And uh, they really cherished that. What they didn't realize, and we're going to see today, is this would forever redefine their relationship with their son he would be very clear about how things would be different going forward. And that's tough for a parent. It's tough to see our kids grow up, but that's exactly what needed to happen. And that's where Jesus is gonna take them in these moments. Now, uh, what could have been like a romanticized, like this is just the high point of life, it becomes a parent's first nightmare. And it's described with two words. Where's Jesus? Okay, look at verse 43. They've, they've made this trip to 
uh, Jerusalem. They've gone through the feasts. Now we're getting to the tail end of the week that they were there. And it says, when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents, here's the kicker, did not know it. But supporting him, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. And then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Yeah, that's, that is a parent's worst nightmare. The where's fill in the blank. Um, I, I uh, recall we didn't, we didn't actually have that moment until our neighbor showed up, but Kimberly and I, we have four kids, our youngest, Grant, uh, was, uh, we thought somewhere in the house. So Kimberly and I are just kind of doing our thing and uh, there's a knock on the door. So we go and answer the door and it's sweet Becky Haynes. I don't know if you know Becky, she was our neighbor. And standing right next to her is our three-year-old son, Grant Waldron. <laughs> and she says, by the way, he was down the street at the corner of your cul-de-sac, just standing around three years old. So we immediately look at each other and we're like, I thought you, (laughs) right? That's exactly what's happening here. I think Joseph and Mary, see, they're leaving Jerusalem. Uh, Little towns like Nazareth, they would all kind of travel in a pack, a caravan, and everybody knows everybody. So right, if your kids aren't with you, they're with somebody we know and they'll be fine. So they travel for a day heading back to Nazareth and probably it's dinner time. Or maybe bedtime, I don't know. But they look at each other and they're like, where's Jesus? He's not here. So then they start the search. They're going around looking, talking to relatives, talking to friends. It's very obvious he's not in the uh, caravan. And the panic sets in, just imagine. So then they turn around and they start heading back to Jerusalem. It looks, says in verse 46, after three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I just, I can imagine because I've I've felt that kind of fear before, but just just imagine all that's going on. This three days is, it's a day to leave Jerusalem, get a day's distance out. It's a day's trip back. And then it's a day looking around Jerusalem. And finally, they find him in the temple. And I cannot imagine, they must have just wanted to explode. And there's Jesus, just sitting, probably smiling, chatting with the religious leaders about the theological issues of the day. Can you imagine walking into that scene? And then you're like, okay, we gotta be good parents. We gotta be chilled. Let's not overreact. And at the same time going, where have you been? It's not unusual for Jesus to be in this place. Okay, the the temple, the, the religious leaders would often make themselves available. They would sit around and children and adults alike could come in, ask them questions. They would kind of instruct them in the ways of God and in the scriptures. Notice that Jesus is asking questions. So he needed to learn. I I don't know if you've thought about this, but so we have Jesus and we, we know he's God, 
but he's also man. Kevin talked about this. So, so what part is what part? How does that work? How does Jesus leave heaven, come to earth, and be a man, be a baby, need to learn, ask questions? I'll tell you, a great word for you to write down in your outline is humility. There is tremendous humility for Jesus Christ to leave heaven, to take on flesh, and need to learn. I want to give you two quick passages here. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. This is who Jesus really was and is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all, him, before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. So why did he need to learn? I thought God knew everything. Well, what Jesus did when he left heaven was he set aside his godly attributes in terms of like omniscience, omnipresence, all the omni kind of stuff, the big stuff that only God can do. He set that aside so that he could truly be a man, which would therefore make him an adequate substitute for you and for me. If he's not a man, he can't stand in our place. Now look at uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Though he was in the form of God, so all that I just read from Colossians, though all that was true, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. The Greek word there is kenosis. He set aside those things that were unique to him as God so that he could be a man. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here we have the God-man in the temple learning. And that would have been considered normal. What's not normal is the way these people are responding to him. Remember it said all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. So this 12-year-old boy has extraordinary understanding about the scriptures, about God, about fitting all those things together, connecting the dots. These religious leaders are going, we've never seen a 12-year-old boy like this. Now, he doesn't probably know more than them because he's still learning, but the, he still has unusual insight, and they are astounded. Now, as you know, and as we get further into this gospel, that uh, admiration is going to turn to hatred. He's not going to be a cute little 12-year-old boy who just knows a lot. He's going to be a leader like them, and he's going to challenge many of the assumptions and expectations that they have for their Messiah. But that's later on down the road. Let's get back to the scene here. We've got Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in the temple. What will they do? And I would say this is a painful moment. I, in your outline, I called it growth pains. 
Um, There's a physical thing that probably most of us can associate as we were growing up, as we were adolescents, we felt aches and pains that were just related to our body growing. But there are growth pains here relationally as Jesus is relating to his parents and helping them adjust to who he is and what he's about. So let's look at this interaction. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. That's probably an understatement. I'm imagining, emotionally charged. They are revved up, probably have some relief. We found our son, he's still alive, that's good. And where in the heck have you been? Wait till we get home. Uh, His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Surprise. Mary asks one question and makes a statement and both of them are loaded with disappointment and accusation. Some of it's very understandable. They have been through a very traumatic experience and there's a lot kind of kind of wound up in that. But here they are confronted with their son and they want to communicate something to him in terms of what's going on inside. I remember another story. I'm just confessing all my parental failures here today. Uh, Kimberly and I were in Chuck E. Cheese celebrating Bo's birthday, one of our sons. And uh, it was packed to the hilt. And if you've been in there, it's like security central. There's no way out, right? So we just told the kids, hey, here's some money. Go have fun and run around. And, and like I said, the place was packed. Well, after a while, we haven't seen Bo. I mean, it's been a long while. And we're just thinking, where in the world can he be? So we just start wandering around. And I, Kimberly's like, you go over there and I'll go over here. So we're just scouring the place. No Bo. We start calling for him. And of course, it's super noisy, but still, we're yelling, Bo, Bo, where are you? Nothing. We go to the owners of Chuck E. Cheese. We're like, our son is gone. Well, you got to help us find him. And so they start looking around. Still no Bo. We are this close to calling the police. We are sure that he has been abducted. And then here comes Bo wandering out from the crowd. Howdy, y'all. We felt that moment, and it didn't take three days. It took about five minutes. Where have you been? He was just in a little game, kind of enclosed. We couldn't see him, just having a ball. Now, we were feeling a whole lot, and we were unloading it on him. But he didn't do anything wrong. He's just doing what we went to Chuck E. Cheese to do. He's playing a game. Probably a little confusing for him. Like, what are you all so uptight about? I sort of think that's what's happening here. We understand what Mary and Joseph are feeling, but just because they don't understand what's going on doesn't mean that Jesus did something wrong. Jesus is gonna kind of confront them in a very gentle way, but let's start with Mary's question and statement. Son, why have you treated us so? 
There had to be some turmoil there for her. She's been raising this boy for 12 years, and he is the perfect, literal, perfect child. He never disobeys. He never has an attitude. He's never difficult. He's never hard-headed. He just literally does everything we ask him to do. He is the perfect son. And this experience that they're having with him doesn't fit at all what they've experienced with him for 12 years. So it's got to be shocking, and she's probably trying to even create categories for a perfect son who somehow did something that didn't feel good and maybe he's innocent or whatever. Son, why have you treated us this way? But she doesn't stop there. Then she goes a little bit further. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Right there, she crossed the line. Your father and I. Let that sink in. This is coming from a place of great emotional anguish. But she is inserting her and Joseph in a way in her son's life who is about to come of age, who's about to become a young adult. She's sort of exerting herself in his life in a way that reveals her lack of understanding. Jesus is gonna help her with that. But that's this moment that they're in. And I, uh, I think a principle that we can take here, because we bump into things that God is doing and we don't understand and we don't quite get it and we can reach certain conclusions about God and his activity and all that. And so I thought failing to understand the activity of God doesn't equate to wrongdoing on God's part. Sometimes we just don't know. Sometimes we just don't understand. And that doesn't necessarily take away the hurt and pain and confusion. But if we can't cling to that, what do we cling to? If he isn't who he has revealed himself to be in his word, then we're in a load of trouble. So Jesus receives this from Mary but he's becoming a man and there is a seismic shift that happens here and he is gonna clarify who he is and what he's gonna be about for the rest of his, day, his days on earth. He asks two questions and to me these questions feel a lot like uh, when Jesus comes to uh, Adam and Eve in the garden after they've sinned. Remember, uh, so they eat of the fruit, then uh, they hear God walking in the garden and they hide. And then what does God do? Adam, where are you? As if God didn't know where Adam was, right? So it's probably not confusion. Why did he ask him that question? Well, he wants Adam to learn about where he is. He wants Adam to see in here. Why did I do what I did? How did I end up in this place? What's going on with me, not with God? I think these questions are similar. I think they uncover some stuff in Joseph and Mary that needs to be uncovered so that they can relate differently to their son who will be the Messiah, who's gonna be their savior, who was their creator. It's like they need some reorientation here. So Jesus asks two questions. First of all, why were you looking for me? Now, that seems a little bit odd, maybe a little obvious. It sort of bugged me throughout my prep for this message. 
Because I was like, you know, the easy answer is they're your parents. What else are they going to do? Right? I mean, our kid's lost. We're going to go search for him. But that seems a little bit too simple. He, he must have been asking that question to expose something a little deeper in them. So I thought of two other questions that might shed a little bit of light on what he's trying to get at. How about this? Mom, dad, what do you want or need from me? What sort of purpose do you want me to serve in your life? And is that purpose primarily about you or something bigger? Here's another question. What did you hope, mom and dad? What did you hope to find when you found me? Relief? Comfort? Peace? An easier life? Like, like what were you really after? Because I think implied in this is Jesus is going, listen, both of you were there when the angel came and, and told you who I was and what I was going to be about. Do you remember that? I'm that guy. So what did you think you would find when you found me after all of your searching? Jesus is going to clarify what they did find. And they're going to have to work out the alignment about whether or not that's uh, what was really going on. He asks another question. He says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now that had to sting for Joseph, especially. Remember she said, behold, your father and I. He said, mom, love you, but I got one dad. He is he's shifting his utter allegiance from his earthly parents to his heavenly father. And he's saying, based on who I am, my identity, where else would I be on earth than in my father's house? My father's house. Now, th there's an interesting thing that happens here. I'm not trying to be Mr. Linguistics guy, but in the Greek... Uh, we supply English words when we're translating Greek that aren't there in the original language. So that phrase, I must be in my father's house, literally says, in thee of my father. So it's like there's a blank there. And we're sort of left to go, well, what goes in the blank? It's like Jesus is saying, did you not know that I must be in, with, around, a part of my father. Like he is the center of everything. Certainly the, the immediate reference is, I'm in the temple, which is known as the father's house. So I'm in my father's house, but it's bigger than that. It's like it's left open. And there's even maybe a little bit of an invitation for us to say, how would you ask that question? Like, based on what you know of me, did you not know that I would be fill in the blank? For Jesus, it's always in thee of my father, in the house of my father, 
in the business of my father, in the purpose of my father, in the plan of my father, in the will of my father. Everything about me is going to orbit around him. They needed to know that. He clarifies that direction going forward. It's a coming of age and he will no longer be a boy just simply following the leadership of his earthly mother and father. Now, having said that, he's a good Jewish boy. He obeys the commandments. One of them happens to be, honor your father and mother, right? So look at verse 51. After this whole conversation goes down, he went down with them, Joseph and Mary, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Again, it's just mind-boggling, the creator submitting to the ones he created. Pretty amazing. And his mother, Mary, treasured up all these things in her heart. That's, that phrase is really a way, I think, for Luke to tell us that he got this story directly from Mary. That she had treasured these things among others and she had delivered these to Luke so that he would get it right. So you've got this amazing identity the God-man, him living in humility, needing to live life like we have to live life, only he lives it perfectly in perfect submission to the Spirit informed by God's Word. Now, the way Luke closes this out is kind of interesting. This is where we come at the whole idea of growth. He brackets this segment with two phrases that are very similar. Look at verses 40 and 52. In 40, it says, the child grew, the child, referring to Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Then we get down to verse 52, and it says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There is a progression that takes place here, and again, in Greek language, we, wouldn't, or we would see this very clearly. In English, it's kind of harder to catch. But in verse 40, that word child is referring more to like an infant or a toddler. In verse 43, when we read earlier, the boy Jesus stayed behind in the temple, that's actually referring to him as like an adolescent, a 12-year-old. That's the season of life that that's referring to. And then notice in 52, there's no qualifiers. It's just Jesus. And it says that he increased. That's another very interesting word. In, the, in verse 40, when it talks about him growing and becoming strong, it's a little, the idea is kind of like, well, biology is just doing its work. He's just growing physically, emotionally, relationally. He's learning stuff. He's growing. But that word in 52, increased, you need to envision Somebody going through a thick forest with a machete, cutting their way through to get to the other side. It, it, there's great intentionality embedded in that word. It literally means to make headway in the spite of blows, to go forward, to progress, to forge ahead, chopping down articles. That's what Jesus was beginning to do at 12 years old. And we're not going to hear anything else from him until he's 30. So about 18 years are going to pass. But Luke is saying, this is what Jesus is about. 
for these next 18 years. He is increasing. And then I saw that phrase at the end, in favor with God and man. And it just so happens that points back to, I think, the book of Proverbs. So if you wanna know what would it look like for someone to increase in the way that Jesus seems to be doing it, like going after it, pursuing it with great intentionality. Listen to Proverbs 3. Just gonna read uh, eight verses. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and the years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. I, I wonder if Jesus, it, when he was thinking about what do I do here to increase in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, maybe this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, like fill in the blank, right? And he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes for the fear of the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That's what it means to increase in the way that Luke describes. So this is a coming of age, a defining moment, and we don't hear anything else about Jesus until he begins his public ministry. So we can assume he was about whatever it is we can glean from this passage. So I wanna give you some thoughts about application here that I think relate to growth and development toward maturity. Some of these will apply to Mary and Joseph. Some of them apply, will apply to Jesus or to both. But certainly there are things that all of us can think about as we are pursuing growth. First of all, life has a reality of a lack of control. And maturity is growing more and more content with that reality and not trying to somehow get around it. Like you and I, no matter how hard we try, we're never gonna control everything around us so that it will be what we want it to be. There's gonna be a lot of life that is out of our control and how we respond to that is crucial. It's related to the second one, limited understanding. Maturity refuses to justify disobedience with a lack of understanding. Yeah, we can talk ourselves into anything, but there's a place in which we just have to say, God, I don't understand this, but, but there are some things I understand, and so I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna be faithful to do what I know, and those things that I don't know or don't understand, I'm gonna leave those to you. And if you want me to know and understand those things, I'm gonna put myself in a position to receive that, but otherwise, I'm just gonna keep on following your lead. A release of responsibility. Maturity involves resisting the temptation to take responsibility for others that isn't yours. Um, it's interesting as we get further into this gospel, and we see this in the other gospels as well, everybody has some idea about who Jesus is and what he ought to be, what he ought to be doing. They have expectations and assumptions for him. And it's like they take responsibility for who he is and what he ought to be doing. 
And there's a place of maturity that just says, God is God. I am not. I don't need to take responsibility for God. I know that sounds kind of silly, but I don't need to do that. I just need to let God be God and follow faithfully along. Let him bear his responsibility as God, and then I'll take responsibility for what's mine and, and live with that. There is a transfer of ultimate allegiance. Parents, um, well, so I'll say this first of all to all of us. There is no more important thing for all of us if we are Christ followers than for our faith to truly become our own. I can't believe for you and you can't believe for me. And with our parents, the most important thing in the world we can ever give them is the opportunity for them to embrace their faith for themselves. I know that's a scary thing for moms and dads, but that ultimate allegiance is vital. And then lastly, submission to authority. Maturity recognizes that everyone is under authority, regardless of what kind of position they may have here on earth. We're all under authority, and maturity is, a, is an ability to live gracefully under that and to receive that control that God has over our lives. So, life change is a way of life. How might God want you to proceed, to pursue, to, to intentionally go after the kind of increase that we see here in the life of Christ? I want you to take a few moments as our so what and just kind of think about what, what is it that God is pointing you toward? Maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's an action, maybe it's a posture, whatever it might be. How might God want you to pursue maturity in a fresh way in the coming week. Take a moment and pray about that if you would.